0: If you're a fan of makeup, then I'm going to guess you've spent a considerable amount of time in the store that was started by my guest today. Welcome to Lady Startup, Mamma Mia's podcast about women in business. It's all about giving you the information you need to start your own or just hear how other people have done it. I'm Rachel Corbett, and I am also a lady startup. Just in case you're wondering what I'm doing at the helm, my business is called Pod School, and my guest today is the founder of Mecca, Joe Horgan. Joe got the idea for Mecca when she was working for L'Oreal in the 1990s, when she realised that customers wanted a more bespoke experience than the traditional beauty stands in the department stores. So she quit her job, and two years later was opening the very first Mecca store on Turak Road. Twenty years later. Joe's once small business now has over 80 stores and she's also launched her own range of colour cosmetics, Mecca Max. So how did she go from the owner of a single beauty store in Melbourne to the founder of a beauty behemoth that is a must shop destination for makeup lovers everywhere? Well, let's find out. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. Lovely to be here.
0: Now, I have a question. Did you always, from the very beginning, want to be an entrepreneur, or is this a total surprise that you've ended up here? I think
1: life is a surprise, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I think having two entrepreneurial parents, I witnessed their journey and I think it made it feel very normal and natural. And so, no, it wasn't a driving desire from the get go but it was always one of the options on the table.
0: I was reading that after you studied at university, you were thinking about going into cable television but ended up going into Mm. makeup. What what made you veer into that course? Because that's kind of (laughs) different.
1: It is very different. And that's because when I... Was at university. I was studying. I was doing a master of mass communications, and so going into cable TV or any of those sorts of environments would have made perfect sense. I'd also done a make uh, a marketing course at Boston University, which I'd loved, mm. and so that again felt doable, and, and it was a passion and an interest. So when I actually started applying for jobs. I really didn't apply for very many. I was super targeted and I always wrote to the CEO. Directly? Oh, absolutely directly. Cheeky email. Actually, it wasn't even the day of emails. Faxed. You faxed I to the faxed CEO? or I wrote either and got my um, interviews that way. So one of Mecca's mantras is elbows out and I think <laughs> I was living it from early on. Anyway, and so In that process, I was in the UK and I had some interviews. One of the interviews I had was with L'Oreal and there was this female general manager and I met her and I just thought, she's amazing. And it was a real crystallizing moment for me actually around choose the people, Mm. not necessarily the position. And that's been a guiding principle for me through my entire career and life. It's like, if you surround yourself with good people, great things can happen.
0: After you left
1: L'Oreal and decided to go out on your own, what was it,
0: why did you decide, no, I'm not gonna work for somebody else, I'm going to do something solo?
1: Whilst working at L'Oreal, which was an exceptional company to work for in that they're very entrepreneurial, they give you a lot of rope, they demand and expect a lot. So it feels quite like the real world. Whilst I was there, I was in charge of launching colour cosmetics into Australia. And that then got put on ice. And I just thought to myself, I don't want to be a small cog in a global machine where decisions that are made completely validly on the other side of the world have a massive impact on me. I want to control my own destiny. And I could have gone to another large organization or I could have gone to a small organization. But again, because entrepreneurship had always seemed like a potential path, that felt like the natural direction. And it was that coupled with the fact that whilst I was looking after the launch of L'Oreal Color Cosmetics for Australia, I witnessed the beginning of this global movement in the mid-90s that was so clear and tangible and you just had to look at it and you knew there was an opportunity there so I think I was in the right place at the right time to execute an entrepreneurial idea and I think I had a light bulb moment that perhaps Uh, corporate life wasn't
0: for me. So that idea for you at the time and the opportunity that you saw was this idea of of makeup at that time was more siloed. Separate companies were kind of pushing their own individual products, but for a consumer they wanted something that was more bespoke,
1: a bit from this, a bit from that, a bit from that. Was nobody doing that at the time? Interestingly, there wasn't any global leaders in that space Twenty two or three years ago when I started looking, Robin Kohutching from Fred Siegel Santa Monica had started the beauty studio and that was revolutionizing the beauty world, but in a small way. Mm. Barney's Apothecary, which was a small part of Barney's in New York, Space NK in London had one store. So it was just the beginning of a movement where people were beginning to consider actually how do customers shop, how do they want to shop, and how can we look after them in a different way. So it was the green shoots of a beauty revolution.
0: It's always a good time to jump on a revolution.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and especially right at the beginning. That's
0: it. You got a good chance of success there. So were you side hustling any of this when you were at L'Oreal or did you quit knowing that you – with this seed of an idea and then sort of go, oh? get started
1: (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't side hustling whilst i was at l'oreal at all i was so focused on l'oreal and determined to launch l'oreal color to the best of my ability but when that opportunity was removed i thought now is my chance and i left and this idea for mecca just grew from there. And it just took time to germinate. I mean, it took over a year and a half to get it off the ground. Yeah, about a a year and a half to get it to the point where it launched. And what was that year
0: and a half about? Was it about finding the right products, building the right relationships, working out whether you did have the right idea? Like, how did you go about sort of testing the waters in a way that when it came time for launch, you thought, I've got something I can be confident in?
1: I'd love to sit here and go, gosh, it was ever so linear. It never is. (laughs) And I I did this and then this and then this. And there's a really lovely tidy timeline. Mm. It's just was not like that. It was quite messy in that I pushed forward on lots of different paths at the same time. So I started trying to recruit the brands from the get go whilst refining the idea of what this concept was actually going to be whilst writing up the business plan of how I could actually make it work, whilst trying to meet other retailers in the market to talk to them about um, their experiences and things that I needed to know. And I could go on with the whilst, whilst, whilst for two more pages. You just gather information, I would suggest, is what I did from the get-go, was I started out going, do I have the kernel of an idea? Yes. Yes. If this is the kernel of my idea, how do I now get all of the necessary information? So one, do I think the brands will come on board? Two, do I think I can get a shop? Three, how much do I think a shop will cost me? Four, can I actually bring these goods into Australia and how will that work? Five, how do I go about recruiting people? How do I go about paying people? Mm. You just have to juggle everything
0: is it difficult to have conversations with brands when you're trying to get people on board, but you're not 100% sure of what this is yet?
1: Well, hang on a second. I do. <laughs> this is where I think one of my great mantras, fake it till you make it, oh, yes, comes in. Oh, yes. Very important. And that is, you know, I went to the brands with an absolutely crystal clear story. So I went to see them the first time and I had my booklet with this is exactly what it's going to be. This is what it's going to look like. So I'd, I'd drawn mock-ups of the store. I wow. said, "This is the brands. You know, these are the brands that are going to be here. This is our point of difference. This is how it's going to work. This is how many shops we're going to have, and this is how much shelf space you'll have." And this is how we'll launch it. So, from the brand's point of view, I was honoured <laughs> <know, it. laughs> three months out from launch. You know, the fact that that was dreamed up at that point Mm. and had taken me maybe three months to get to that point they didn't need to know that yes of course and when I went to see them that first time I was never going to do the deal that first time Mm. I just wasn't going to happen but it gave them a signal I was serious and it allowed me much more interestingly to fact find and to read the play with the brands what did they want? What were the obstacles? How could I up- overcome those obstacles? And so that I walked away crystal clear in my mind about what it would take for the brands to come on board, which did actually change the business model entirely because suddenly it wasn't enough that they would just ship me the brands and I'd be a retailer. Mm. They had no interest in Australia. They were in the US, you know, somewhere between 10 and 50 stores. They weren't in Asia, they weren't in Europe. They were looking at me going, we're low on resources, human and financial. Australia just would never make sense for us. And so suddenly it was like, okay, we will act like your local brand partner. We will be the affiliate here in Australia for you.
0: So were you, as you're sort of talking to those brands and you're still trying to work out whether you've got this idea right, were you getting a sense from what they were giving you that... I'm onto something here.
1: It's interesting. I didn't think I needed the brands to tell me I was onto something. I just needed to go into like Barney's Apothecary or Fred Siegel Mm. and see the customer reaction. You know when you go somewhere and you can just feel it and see it. So from that point of view, I was completely convinced that there was a movement and it was happening. The big push with the brands is how in heaven's name do I get them over the line? Mm. And that was the biggest hurdle because without those brands, I was nothing. Mm. The rest, you, you can find a different shop and have a different team and you can choose a different point of sale and you can change the numbers in the business plan. But if you do not have the revolutionaries and these brands were the revolutionaries, you don't have the concept that you need to make the customers want to shop with you.
0: How did you go about choosing the right mix of products and working out which ones that you wanted? Did you just have a good sense from your time at L'Oreal and your time in the business about
1: what brands were going to resonate with customers? Someone gave me my son a t-shirt recently that said done is better than perfect. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is I had a list of 20 brands I didn't go down to category I didn't go down to you know how much of this is lip versus eye versus foundation it's like there are 20 brands that are super interesting can I get these brands on board and interestingly they all said yes and I started with seven and then built the offer from there and I learned as I went and it was the fact that the brands were amazing Mm. I mean truly amazing and as a result customers wanted those brands that was very forgiving of the overall premise and concept and allowed for lots of mistakes along the way so no i I was not as planned as i should be but i could have spent another year trying to eke out the perfect plan by which point it wouldn't have been the beginning of the revolution anymore and someone else may have actually you know stolen the march
0: You invested your own money, sold your house to mm-hmm. start the business. That is a big thing to do and there are a lot of people who want to start their own business who think about whether or not that's an option. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you can start something and you don't need a great deal of money to invest but other times you mm-hmm. need things like stock and mm-hmm. a physical shop and potentially employees and so you do need money behind you. So how do you, how do you make that decision if I'm somebody that's sitting here going I want to sell my house, I feel like I've got a great idea not that you can ever know whether it's going to work or not, but yeah. what's that extra 1% that makes you realise it's worth the
1: risk? I think that in my case, there were a few indicators which helped make the decision easier. The first was I'm a big believer in getting input from lots of different people. And one of the people we went to was the, one of the partners at Boston Consulting Group where my husband worked at the time and he was also the head of retail. And we presented the idea to him. And first of all, he thought it was fantastic. Secondly, he introduced me to Steve Bennett, who um, was the founder of Country Road and who was heading up George's. And thirdly, he said to me, if there's any way you can do this on your own, get proof of concept before you bring investors on, because it will give you more freedom and it will allow you to maintain control because you will have to sell less to investors because it will be worth more as you've got proof of concept so there were moments like that where you presented it to different people and their reactions were really positive positive. Mm. and the second point I think that was interesting for me and whether it came from L'Oreal or whether it came from my experiences with Mecca is pivoting had always felt relatively easy for me i.e. if something's not working find another way around it, think of another way, change direction, change course. And I think that was incredibly helpful. I'll give you an example. We launched our first store in December 97, which, by the way, as you know, is crazy. Don't launch retail in December. (laughs) Secondly, you know, we launched George's in February of um, 1998. And a year later, it went into receivership. And we were back down to one store, and we had had plans to open more stores, and we just couldn't afford not to have that revenue. David Jones had approached us to take a store in Sydney. And so the natural response from me was okay, David Jones is just down the road, let's talk to them about Melbourne. And we put in a temporary store, which literally took a week to pull together. And then we opened a completely new store two months later. And so it's examples like that where, you know, nothing, not everything is going to go (laughs) your way. And it's in my instance how I I, I had the confidence that we would find a way around it. Mm -hmm. So I think one, getting endorsement from people that it was a good idea, that it was worthwhile pursuing and that people were offering their own contacts and in fact their own investment. And secondly, having a confidence that when things didn't go right, right, I would find a way around them.
0: When you opened the doors on your Turak Road shop, was it just you? Did you have input? What was the setup there?
1: (laughs) Well, I did have two employees, two team members um, who worked with me on the floor, and another educator. And we did the education in the front room of my house and even back then it was a 10-day program and hasn't really deviated from that Mm -hmm. since and that was it and then Prue who's still with us 20 years later she was my friend's babysitter's sister and I went out to dinner in the February after we launched the December and I looked so wrecked I was so tired (laughs) (laughs) because it was quite full-on and my friend said to me oh you need help you need some support and I think I have someone for you so they wrote and by the time I got back to them six weeks later because I was like Mm -hmm. so much going on she'd already taken another job but in that meeting I said "No, no no you can't do that job you have to come and do this job And so she joined Mecca and 20 years later she's still there. So that was the founding team.
0: I love those stories and I've spoken (laughs) to quite a few people on this show who have that same story, you know, somebody started off right at the beginning and they're still Mm -hmm. here at the end and it's so nice to have those people Mm -hmm. that have been through every single step of the journey, not just people that are, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. that's come on at the end when it's all success, they've seen how it's grown from the bottom up. What was the dream at that point? Was it you wanted to have multiple stores, or was it I want this store to be the most successful <laughs> <store?"
1: laughs> maker ever? You know, was it just a smaller vision then? It wasn't so much about the physical presence of the store, it was much more about here's an idea that customers would love. So, how do I actually make sure that customers get to love it? Mm. And so, the original plan was 10 stores in Australia. And I remember people saying, "Ugh, oh, you know, maybe one in Sydney, one in Melbourne. There'll be no appetite post that. You know, it's a very pointy-ended concept." And my view was, I think, again, there are ways in which to extend it, tweak it, pull it. It's more flexible than people are giving it credit for. So we did a business plan around ten stores, and that felt like a lot, and that felt very ambitious at the time, and. It was funny, the 10-store plan was out here and up here in sort of the stratosphere. And my daily life was absolutely all about making that one store on Torak Road the best store that I could possibly make it. But dot, 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 so I could take the concept to Sydney, so I could take the concept to other places, because I felt customers would embrace it.
0: How far into the
1: opening of that Torak
0: store did you start to put the feelers out to start opening more.
1: It didn't really work like that. It was more like fate took me by the jugular and dragged me along with it (laughs) because... I, as I said, presented the idea to George from Boston Consulting Group. He put me in contact with Steve. He was doing George's. They said you should do George's. George's opened two months after that first store. So I didn't have very long just to make sure one store was tidy and perfect. Oh, I was straight Get it together. Into, We're doing this yes, now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you you have those moments of absolute burning in the crucible, horror moments and that was one of them where we just opened one store and suddenly we had an enormous store to open Mm. and so that felt like a big deal and then David Jones came knocking and they wanted to open doors and interestingly again landlords started coming to Mecca because I think they saw that it was a concept back to the key premise of this whole idea they saw that customers would embrace it? This might be a boring question. I'm hoping not. (laughs) I'll try and, I'll I'll do your deal. I'll try and make it an interesting answer.
0: (laughs) Okay. I just don't know whether there's an interesting answer to this. So, but uh, because I've never done bricks and mortar, I guess I'm thinking there's going to be people that are listening to this that might want to open their own shop or something. Mm -hmm. And they, that physical idea of a store is something that they desperately want. Is there any kind of advice you would have about finding the
1: right commercial property. That's not a boring question at all. (laughs) 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 And I could talk about it forever (laughs) because finalizing real estate is a big part of what I do. It's not my favorite job by any means, but it's just so critical. And what I would say in terms of finding a first store is one, look at lots of different options. Two, don't get your heart set on one single store. That's a surefire way to pay too much. Three, do your homework and find out how much people are paying for stores around you. Four, really look at what costs are on top of the base rent and what building costs you will have outside of what you think is your store concept. A pesky pillar can add you know <laughs> over $10,000 to a shop fit for example mm. and so and the last thing if you can find a supportive landlord if you can connect with the landlord through an agent but if you can connect with the landlord that's also very helpful.
0: When you were doing those first shop fit outs, I mean, did you have connections? I, I, I just think, gosh, how do you even know what it's, it's going to, I mean, it's all so much guesswork at the beginning, <laughs> isn't it? It's like, I want it to look like this, but I don't know how much it's going to cost. And then next thing you know, you're in for this huge
1: bill. And like, it's, it's, it's a huge undertaking. I think this comes back to this idea of always fact find mm. and, I'll give you an idea. In that instance, the right architect partner was going to be absolutely critical. And so I literally just asked around. I I went down the stores that I loved on Chapel Street in Sydney and said, who's the architect? Who's the architect? Who's the architect? And similar names came up. And then what I would do is I went to see these architects and I said, who do you think are your three key peers? And no one's going to put the people they think that aren't quite as good as them, are they? They're all going to say the people who are the best in the
0: industry. Yeah.
1: So the same names start bubbling up and so as a result that helped me choose an architect and we were literally a love project for the architect we used because we were tiny but I went with a mood board and he loved the mood board and he wanted to be involved and he loved the brands, and he loved everything about the concept so I was super lucky and then also going back to asking lots of questions, what's the cost to fit out? You go and ask the different uh, architects you're meeting with and then you ask some builders roughly how much does it cost to build a f- store fit out? You talk to other retailers, they'll give you an average per square meter. And then, you know, I just said to the architect, this is all the money I have. So there is no blowout <laughs> possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we just say no to things. So you really do have to have
0: almost a journalist's approach to fact-finding.
1: I think it is exceptionally helpful. Mm. I think it actually tethers the concept and reality in a way that nothing else can.
0: Your husband came on board and started working with you in the business. Was it long into that that he started to realise, well, I might have to quit my job here, this is getting...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, he has been so fantastic from the outset. He was working at Boston Consulting Group. He was a partner at Boston Consulting Group. And they agreed to allow him to work six for six months, 50% on this crazy idea that your wife has and 50% on actually being a wow. properly employed consultant. And the tragedy of it was that he had to go back to full-time work before we had opened our first door because it took so long for us to actually find the real estate Mm. and again in retrospect at the time it felt like an absolute cataclysm in retrospect it wasn't a bad thing because it just meant our ducks were in a row when we did finally open the doors he then went back to full-time work at BCG for another eight years and he joined I think in in the ninth year of the business full-time
0: What's it like having your life partner also your partner in business? (laughs) I can imagine there's a few things that probably aren't great about it. But the idea of having somebody in your life in a relationship that Mm -hmm. also understands what you're Mm -hmm. doing, because I think especially I think for women in business that are trying to start their own thing, if you don't have an understanding partner who gets Mm -hmm. that you want to be at the computer at 2am on Saturday night or that, you know, it's something that we've almost... We've almost put on that's what men do, but mm. women are really leading the charge with this stuff now. And I think, still in relationships, dudes can be a bit weird about it. So, having somebody that understands what you're doing and can work with it on with
1: you, surely that's just, I mean, it's a great thing. I think it's an exceptional thing. And Sheryl Semberg in her mm. book, Lean In, says, you know, the single most important decision that you make in your life, should you choose to have a partner, is to have a supportive partner who is genuinely. behind you in what you decide to do from a career point of view and from any point of view. Mm. And Pete was that person. He was 100% supportive. And when he joined the business, and it's a question people ask all the time, oh, how is it working with your husband? (laughs) And it's interesting. We asked another married couple, what do they do? And they sit at separate ends of the office. Two, there can only be one boss. And three, never fight Mm. in front of team members. And so we had some relatively clear directions from the beginning. We now sit in completely opposite buildings. (laughs) And, you know, I said, well, of course I'm the boss because I started it. Mm. And Pete, being the very relaxed guy, he is super happy to go along with that. And I woke up about three years later and went, hmm, Pete's in charge of the stock and he's in charge of finance what's retail about? You don't have any stock and you don't have any money. You don't have a business. <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh. laughs> so, so he's just as much in charge as I am. And, you know, that felt completely fine. And then not arguing in front of the team members, that was funny. You know, it's one of the reasons I took up meditation was <laughs> to <laughs> try and keep it together at work. Cuz you it was like as we were sort of disagreeing on different points, I could just breathe through it and you know, were used to drive into work together and drive home and at the end of the day I'd get in the car and go, "Why did you say we shouldn't open that store? Of course we should." You know, and end up having this you know, healthy debate, yes, I'll call of course. It, in the car on the way home. And ultimately, and back to finding creative solutions, I decided it would just be much better to buy a car and drive separately. (laughs) And the minute we get home, the children don't give two hoots about anything to do with anything except what's going on in their lives. And that made it feel very real and meant that we didn't get to discuss Mecca. Very
0: smart approach. Very (laughs) smart approach. What, What do you think are the essential characteristics if you want to be an entrepreneur?
1: I have seen so many different types of entrepreneur and I'm not sure that there are these key secret characteristics that you have to have or these defining um, approaches the people who I look at and think yes you seem suited to be an entrepreneur they're confident Mm. they're willing to give something a go and fail they build resilience they're inquisitive and they're adaptable They are creative thinkers. They think differently. I heard that you said
0: only the paranoid survive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) do. I do,
1: often. (laughs) What do you mean by that? I think that people tell you what you want to hear. It's a lovely thing about society that people are very kind and they're very generous. If you've put your heart and soul into something, people are bound to tell you the good news stories around it. And I don't think that's very helpful to actually driving a business I think that you have to spend your entire time thinking okay what's around that corner that I cannot see and is it good and is it bad and what does it mean and how can I anticipate that and it's a real mantra of mine thank you very much for all those lovely compliments but really what are we not doing well how are we not doing it well how are we improving on it How can we be ahead of everybody else? I I just don't think that in this day and age with this much competition and so many people all striving for excellence that you can achieve it by being in any way complacent. And I think only the paranoid survive is the antithesis of complacency.
0: What what about creating a workforce for people or a workplace for people rather where they feel engaged and like it's something they're passionate about? You know, I came to knock on your front door and... Turned up at one building and came across the road to the other building. you got a lot of people here. You're covering two sides of a street. So, so you got plenty of people to look after. Um, but, you know, maybe for somebody who hasn't started their business yet but they might get to employ people, starting off on the right foot is a good thing rather than making three years of mistakes and then going, ooh, I really should have done some, this at the beginning. Is there any advice you've got around that, about hiring people and creating the right place for them to feel like they want to come to work every day?
1: I think people are the be-all and end all of a business and my advice to anyone is hire the right people get the right people on the bus and as necessary get the wrong people off the bus and i learned this very early on jim collins wrote the book good to great mm. which i love and i read it every couple of years in january just to set me back on my path and I think that if you do have the right people on the bus and you are leading them in an you know, authentic way, that creates sort of this sort of very positive momentum. And then if you give people enough rope and you let them fly, because let's face it, I may be really, really, really good at about three things and really, really rubbish at about 100, Mm -hmm. and okay at maybe 50 in between. And there will be other people who are so much better than me, so much better in so many areas. So it's giving them the platform to be the best that they can be and bringing everyone together behind one mission, one clear purpose, communicating really clearly and openly and honestly and making it fun, you know, there's one life, mm. you've got to have fun. Yes.
0: Otherwise, what for? Yeah. Do you think gut instinct is a big thing in the hiring process?
1: Do you do you put much weight in that? Do you know, I'm going to uh, having just talked about how fabulous Jim Collins is, and he is. He basically doesn't even see people until they've been through the interview process, so that you look at things very empirically i'm the complete opposite (laughs) and and i meet people and i am looking for people with high energy clarity of thought and communication and just good people you can then bring in to the organization and you know that they're going to add to the vibe and the productivity
0: i always think you want people in your business who could be doing something else you know, so you want to make you want to yeah. make it as great for them because they could just go and do their own thing or go and work wherever they want, you know. And I think I've seen some businesses that let go of people I'm like, you really want to hang <laughs> on to that person. Like they can go anywhere. Yeah. You want to yeah. make it a better experience for those because if you've got all of those individuals who could be ever, anywhere else, that's the kind of sort of
1: magic dust that makes something happen. But it's the only thing that makes that, mm. that something happen and what is to stop them going somewhere else. Mm. And that's why I try and create an environment where people almost have their own mini businesses where they can have the idea and they can go for it. And if they're that way inclined, the the opportunity is endless. They've Mm. just got to put their hand up for it.
0: If you had your time again, would you do anything differently?
1: That's such a difficult question. (laughs) Um, Yes, I'd probably do 10 million things differently, but then I wouldn't be where I am now. And I am ultimately incredibly happy where mecca sits 20 years on in terms of the customer experience the amazing team that we have in the business and the innovative ideas that are continuing to come down the pike that makes it incredibly energizing if i had my time again yeah but the beauty of hindsight we would have accelerated faster earlier i was very conservative i didn't have the money wrong moves would have meant Going out of business, that didn't seem like an option. Obviously, n- n- what I know now is that I could have just hit the, <laughs> hit the 100 miles an hour button immediately mm. and just go for it. Um, so I didn't do that. And yeah, that would have been a lovely, lovely thing to do because there is so much more that I want Mecca to do and to be. And I feel that there's a team in place who can see it, who can touch it. And it's just... I sometimes think, gosh, imagine if we'd already done those things. How incredible. You don't have to obviously reveal any secrets, not that you would on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> let me just
0: blurt it all out for you. Sorry, competitors.
1: I'm not um, very good with filters, actually, so you never uh, know. <laughs> I'm,
0: sure, I'm sure I'll be getting a terse phone call saying cut that bit out if it happens
1: so that won't be occurring. But, you know, what are those dreams for the future of the business? What What do you want to do? It's a really interesting time to be asking that question. I'm asking that question of myself, you know, for the first 20 years, the first 5 years it was like gosh, can I have a business that survives? You know, for the first 10, can we do something really interesting in cosmetics? For the last 10, so 20 in total, you know, can we become the number one beauty destination in Australia and New Zealand? And we've achieved that and we have clear goals for the next two three years of how many stores we can roll out and how we can innovate around the concepts and there's lots of really exciting things that are happening but now is the time to sit there and go what does the next 10 years look like and it's an incredibly energizing time for us because i often say at mecca i feel like we're drinking from a fire hydrant of opportunity wow You don't hear that that much in business. It's always sort of you hear the doom and gloom. Well, I'm not sure if I've said it, but I'm suddenly optimistic people have always <laughs> said that about me. <laughs> Clearly, use, if you're all sitting around the fire hydrant and everybody else is crying
0: themselves to sleep at night.
1: <laughs> I do well, We could be delusional.
0: Well, who knows? <laughs> You've got to look on the bright side, right? Um, finally, what, what would your advice be? I know there's been little bits of advice all through this show, but what would your advice be sort of drilled down for people who want to get into, a bu- into their own business?
1: Do a business plan. Surround yourself with really good people. Have a good accountant, a good lawyer, good advisors who are relevant to you. Do your homework. And I like the way you said it. Take a journalistic approach to fact-finding. And then just do it. Just bloody well. (laughs) Get on with it (laughs) and do it. And then my PS would be, once you've started the very scary journey that it is be flexible enough to confront the brutal facts that lots of things won't work and that's okay and what are your creative solutions to that how are you going to problem solve around that
0: Joe, it's been a bloody delight. Not only because you're just lovely to talk to, but also because your meeting rooms smell wonderful.
1: <laughs> well, there is sort of some benefits from being in the new products room with every product that we're considering. Oh, oh in my front goodness. Of you. Oh hello. Nobody checked my bag well, on the way. That's why now. we're on radio. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rachel. Love talking to you too. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Lady Startup. Next week will be the final episode episode in season one. Oh. Like, oh, how did that go past so quickly? But I am wrapping it up with a doozy. I am sitting down with well-known female entrepreneur, the owner of Sweaty Betty PR, Roxy Jasenko. I know you might have assumptions about this lady. I know you've probably seen her on social media, but I encourage you to listen to this chat because you may feel differently about her at the end of it. If you have not already, I know I mention this a lot, head to ladystartup.com.au because Mia Friedman is about to drop a course if you have dreams of starting your own business and you need a little help and you don't know where to get started and you've been listening to these episodes and you're getting little morsels here and there, then head to ladystartup.com.au and pop your email address in to join the email list and you will be the very first to hear about the course that will be dropping very shortly. It is a six-week course designed to take you from idea to launch and Mia will be running it. So if you have dreams and you want to make them a reality, make sure you head there and register your interest. And I will see you back in your ears for the following. Final episode of season one next week with Roxy Jasenko. I'll see you then.